Hello, and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Church in Maine is a podcast that looks for God in the midst of issues affecting the church and the larger society. You can learn more about the podcast, listen to past episodes, and donate by checking us out at churchinmaine.org or churchinmaine.substack.com. And consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and leave a review. That helps others find this podcast. So um, I actually have a new episode coming up this week um, that you will be hearing um, about a Lutheran congregation um, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area um, that got involved in um, helping to provide housing for those experiencing homelessness. But as I was uh, preparing that uh, interview, I looked back and remembered another interview I did at another Lutheran church. This is what happens when you live in Minnesota, which has lots of Lutherans, is um, of a church that um, the pastor went there initially, at least by the the, uh, synod, thinking that he was there to be a hospice pastor, there to close the congregation, a congregation that has seen better days. But that didn't happen. In fact, it has thrived. Um, And so... I was thinking about this episode when I thought about this episode that I did back in uh, December of, of 2021. Um, it reminded me just of the recent episode I did with Graham Bocott about uh, St. Anne's um, Anglican Church um, in uh, Ontario. And this is in some ways a similar story, a story of a church that a lot of people had given up for dead and yet is still alive. So I thought I would um, uh, share this uh, interview again, and um, especially for those pastors who are leading small congregations or congregations that are maybe looking for a second chance. And so um, this is an interview that I had back in December of 2021. with the pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in um, Lauderdale, Minnesota, which is kind of a small little uh, burg that is nestled in between Minneapolis and St. Paul. And I had an interview, a great interview uh, there with uh, Pastor Dave Greenland, uh, kind of about his story, uh, how he came to Peace Lutheran, and, um, and the changes that took place in that community. So, um, I will go ahead and uh, let you listen to this. And uh, just to let you know, early on, I do talk about uh, the podcast being called En Route. And it's kind of like the one I did a few uh, episodes ago. That was the old name for the podcast. So that's kind of where uh, that name comes from. But without further ado, uh, here it goes. This interview I had with Pastor Dave Greenland of Peace Lutheran Church in uh, Lauderdale, Minnesota, back in December 
Welcome to En Route, the podcast that is a journey of faith in modern life. Well, it is December. I hope that you have had a good Thanksgiving and that you're entering into the season of Advent. Um, this is Dennis Sanders, your host. This is the podcast where we have, we explore the who, where, why, what, and how of religion and other topics. So, what's going on today? Well, tell me if you've heard this one before. There's this mainline Protestant congregation in some city or suburb. It might be about 60 years old. It could be 120 years old. The kind of good old days of this congregation were in the 1960s and 70s, when the church had maybe about 800 members and had two services every Sunday. Then in the 1980s, the church started to lose members. It was just a few people at first, but then it accelerated. There were families that left, but there were also older members, some that died and some that could no longer make it to church. There were a lot of different things that were tried in order to maybe turn things around, but nothing really worked. By 2010, the church that at had once had 800 members in 1967, now had about 80 members. The church that was once bursting at the seams is now feels empty. The remaining members are starting to wonder how much time they have until they'll have to close the doors of the church. Now, this scenario or something like it has been played out over and over again in congregations around the country. Churches are dealing with um, declining membership and declining budgets. And just like this fictional church, they wonder how long do they have until they have to hold their last worship service? It doesn't have to be this that way. Peace Lutheran Church is a congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. It's located in the small town of Lauderdale, which actually kind of lodged between Minneapolis and St. Paul. When Pastor Dave Greenland was asked to pastor the congregation, um, he was basically told um, by uh, the Synod office that he may have to be the, the hospice pastor for the congregation the person that was going to allow and help to lead the church to die a good death. That was in 2004. Peace is still alive. It's, it's still kicking, and it's even grown a bit. So in this episode, I get to chat with Reverend Greenland, and it's about the story of peace, how it learned to connect with the community around it, and actually how it learned to be dead in order that it could be resurrected. Let's listen to Dave Greenland. Good to have you on this podcast, Dave. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I think the first thing um, to ask is a little bit about your own background as a, as a pastor, Lutheran pastor, um, and then a, a little bit about the church itself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, yeah. So I am from the inner city of Chicago and uh, um, I was Lutheran my whole life as a kid. Just happened to be the church that our family lived closest to. Um, and uh, um, with, you know, a, a single mom and, and, uh, um, and grandparents. And um, I uh, went to a Lutheran college in South Dakota, um, South Dakota, because it was far enough away and uh, something different. Culturally, and and uh, uh, when it came time for me to um, go to seminary, um, I decided that I had been steeped in the Lutheran tradition for so long. I needed something different. I needed to see what the world was uh, as far as uh, Christianity went, and so I uh, went to I left school of theology, a Methodist school in Denver. Okay. Um, and then uh, when I got a taste of the Methodists and the United Church of Christ and and the Catholics and everybody else, it was a much more. Uh, um, diverse uh, religiously there, um, George Tinker, uh, um, O.C. Indian and Lutheran was my advisor at ILF. And um, he said, boy, when you go off for your Lutheran year after your master's, you should really go to the GTU um, in Berkeley, California, because they really have a connection to uh, all the denominations. So that's what I did. And uh, I ended up on the West Coast for a good number of years, uh, four or five years. And then uh, had an internship in uh, Hollywood, California, um, made my way back east uh, for my first call in the Black Hills, hmm. South Dakota. And uh, um, and then uh, um, Como Park Lutheran Church here in uh, St. Paul, and then uh, eventually over here to Peace Lutheran. So this is my third call. Okay. And uh, um, yeah. And what, so, what made you, how did you find yourself at Peace? What, what got you there? Yeah, um, uh, basically got a got a call from the bishop's office asking if I would consider moving over from Como Park to here, which is, you know, as as uh, I mean, you can you can drive there in three minutes or less. It's so close, and usually that's that's not usually thought of as a good idea because you'll have, you know, parishioners that'll follow a pastor to another place if it's just down the street, and didn't really want that kind of a mess, but. Um, uh, you know, the bishop at the time, I just thought, I don't know any uh, issue with that. You know, the two churches are so vastly different. Mm-hmm. You know, one uh, being very traditional um, and the other one uh, being uh, um, so, so small and almost uh, like a rural church in the middle of the city. Um, and, uh, uh, and besides that, it had very few members and, um and the, and the bishop's office more or less thought, you know, our, our days were numbered here. So uh, they leveled with me and said, you know, if you if you take that call, basically it's it's hospice ministry and you'll be you'll be closing the ministry down after 70 years or so, because it's just got a handful of people left. And uh, um, and that's that's what it'll be. So I, I basically came in with my eyes open Um to the interviews and then found out really quickly that uh, the people on the call committee, they weren't looking at it as a a time to shut the building down, shut the ministry down. They were looking to find ways to radically do something different in their neighborhood, um, but just didn't, uh, didn't have the bodies. Uh, um, So it's kind of a very traditional story in the mainline church now, especially for inner city. Well, even uh, out, you know, uh, um, more uh, suburban and and even country churches, you know, how do how do we get, get people back back in the membership or back in the community 
of faith. And uh, so, you know, when it's been going downhill for so long, as far as, uh, you know, uh, people being a part of it, it's pretty hard to turn it around. So I think it was just being realistic um, on the part of the synod. And uh, we just had our second kid, too. So and uh, we just happened to live two blocks from this church in Lauderdale itself, which is a little little uh, city, little town with its own um, city hall and everything. So I I, uh, I came in and uh, um, realized really quickly that they really wanted to do something. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of exciting w- without um, without a lot of uh, uh, illusions of, you know, boy, this could be something, whatever, uh, that could stay around. You know, they had the ticker uh, going, you know, uh, at the current giving rate of, of the current membership, you know, we will be open for 18 months. And then it was, you know, then we'll be open for 16 months. And every every month, depending on what, what the uh, um, offerings were, uh, we would adjust that. Okay, we've got enough money to exist for 11 more months. Or, you know, and uh, um, so it was kind of, and, and sometimes even published in the bulletin that way, um, which uh, becomes such a, a, a defeatist kind of a thing, you know. Um, you've seen it in many places, you know, in order to continue this ministry, we need, you know, $1 million each week. Last week, we got $27.60. This is how far off we are. And uh, um, so basically, people can just continue to stare at the wreckage of of, uh, of a ministry that uh, it can't sustain itself. Um, so that just really deflates people. So uh, um, they were kind of there, but at the same time, they were, they were really wanting to be faithful to this place, this neighborhood and do something. And, uh, so they wanted to hire me full time. And, uh, um, I would have, you know, I'm, I'm more, more apt to, uh, say, yeah, I'll, I'll just, how about if I come halftime? They wanted a full time person, um, in a ministry that wasn't taking any, anywhere near full time, you know, needs, um, my wife at the time is my greatest agent and advocate. And she said, you can't take anything less than guidelines for full-time ministry there because we do have a second kid and she was in school and, uh, and, and the way she looked at it. And I think it's pretty right on. Um, if I were to take the call here, um, if they paid me guidelines, uh, you know, we would just close that much quicker a month earlier versus six months, you know, uh, later, you know, depending upon the money. That, so why, if we really want to be full-time, let's do this the right way and just, uh, let's just have faith and move forward. But we, uh, I, and at the same time, the people here, uh, you know, the handful, they were realistic too. They, they recognized that, you know, uh, as much as they desired to stay alive, it might not be in the cards. It might not be the best thing. Um, it might not be, they may not have what, uh, the neighborhood needed at this moment, and they were going to be okay with that. So the idea was, um, if uh, if I came here, uh, we would do what we always wanted to do here, you know, uh, as a people, and um, and and uh, we won't we won't uh, we won't go out just wishing. So one of the things that they wanted to do for years here, I came to find out was they always wanted to work on houses in the neighborhood for their neighbors and care care for their neighbors. 
and uh, they even put it in place. They did a lot of work in developing a program, um, a barter system program, um, where people would sign up with their gifts and uh, they would get points for their gifts. So um, I'm always fond of saying, you know, if you were a brain surgeon here and you said I could do brain surgery, you would get the equivalent of five points per hour. <laughs> but if you crocheted gloves, hats, and mittens, you know, it takes a lot longer to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes expertise too. That only gets three points per hour. So a brain surgeon gets five points per hour. And, and so the idea is, you know, a plumber would get three points per hour or five points. And then, uh, and then when you needed some work, let's say the person doing the gloves uh, would would need uh, um, some plumbing work. They could call the plumber and say, I've got six points saved up. Could you come and work on my plumbing? And uh, And that's the way it was designed to work, but it didn't work. And, uh, and I've come to understand it didn't work because people didn't really need each other. <laughs> you know, people really don't need each other. Um, for instance, uh, you know, there was, there was uh, um, a person that's actually still here that would give you the shirt off of her back and her husband's and lend you their car. They would do all kinds of things. They would rack up so many points in helping people if they were allowed to help people do whatever. Um, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to call anybody to come and do their windows, their, their window washing, because they didn't want to feel like, you know, they were using people. So it's the, uh, it's the, I think it's the number one issue we have as an, you know, as a culture. Um, I, I call it a credit card culture. You know, credit cards are really easy. You offer up a credit card and you don't see the workers. You don't have to know their names. You don't have to feed them. You don't have to interact with them. You just pay the bill later and it'd be better not to talk about the money at all. Just send the bill. And, uh, but when it comes to, you know, it's, it, you know, Jane is coming to wash your windows and everybody knows Jane, uh, is hypoglycemic. So you better, everybody knows, okay, we'll take care of Jane when she comes. And she's, um, she's good on ladders, but you got to watch her, you know, and she does a great job on windows. So that would be her gift. Well, what would you do if you had a credit card and you had the means? Would you hire a window cleaning company while you were gone on vacation? Or would you get involved with Jane on the ladder? You know, so the relationships always take longer. And, and you have to own the project together. Mm -hmm. And if the windows don't get completely cleaned the proper way, you only have Jane and yourself to blame um, instead of just pushing it off to some other, uh, again, the credit card separates us. It becomes a wall between us and, uh, and our neighbor. Um, so it failed. You know, they had all these, you know, over 100 people signed up with the gifts that they could offer, but nobody was calling in ever to get help. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, um, and they, it was, it was a wonderful vision. So uh, when I got here, um, that's one of the things we had to work with is what do they want to do? And, uh, um, and you, when you mean they, you mean the congregation? What well, the congregation of, you know, 20 or less people, you know, uh, 
you know, they, um, they, you know, really, uh, really wanted, wanted to live out this vision. And, uh, uh, but now it was becoming apparent that they were, they were very close to closing. They could see, they could see the end from where they were seated. (laughs) And, uh, and, and so what we agreed on was, okay, let's have this vision. Let's do this. Let's take the money we've got left and and uh put flyers out at every house in Lauderdale 700 houses is about what we have and by foot we walked around delivered these flyers and um and and just put them in the doors don't bother anybody don't knock on the doors i mean they've been practicing for months before i came in 2004 um they've been practicing about knocking on the doors of neighbors two by two because Jesus calls us to go out two by two, <laughs> and it it would it would it would work like uh, it would work like um, it would work like this, you know. Uh, uh, you know, one person would go up to the door, the other person would stay on the curb, and you'd go up with your 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 little uh, your little board, and you'd uh, you knock on the door. Somebody would finally come after you prayed for a whole minute that they wouldn't. They finally open their door and they say, can I help you? And you say, yeah, we're from Peace Lutheran Church. Do you have a couple minutes for three questions? Because it's better to ask people questions and engage them than just say, hey, would you come to church? <laughs> so the questions are, you know, what do you think the neighborhood need? What could the church do more for, for the neighborhood? And everybody always answered the same question, the, the question the same way. It was, it, was, it was always, we need something more for the children. And we need to feel safer. Well, those are like, who's going to disagree with those, you know? But so you end up with the conversation ending uh, in, a, in a pretty surface way. And, and then you go down to the curb. And then you go to the next house and you say, you go up and get this one because I had the last one. I'll wait here for you. And that's all there is to it. And um, so I said, uh, you know, if we if we put the flyers out, we're not talking to anybody unless you run into them. Don't ring any bells. Leave it alone. And they said, why? Why? I mean, that's against everything that that is out there in any literature about going and meeting your neighbors. (laughs) I said, yeah, I said, but let's think about it this way. And this is just for our neighborhood. It could be true for other places, too. I found it's kind of true in a lot of places, but at least where I've been. You know, let's. If I wasn't your pastor called here, uh, I live two blocks from here. So let me guess you want to go and meet these people right at supper time because everybody will be there at supper time. <laughs> so I said, I'm not your pastor. You ring my bell. It's supper time. I've got a, I've got a four year old and a two year old. I'm making dinner alone. The bell rings. I look around the corner and I see through the front window that it's somebody with a clipboard. And I see somebody down below on the bottom of the steps, and I'm thinking Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I'm in the, there's a pot of water boiling, and I've got a four-year-old that wants to climb up there and stir it. What am I going to? So, all right, uh, since they already saw me before I duck back in the kitchen and pretend like I'm not home, I've got to go to the door. Now, I open the door. Now, we're starting a relationship in a very precarious place. I don't want to be answering the door. 
and they don't want me to answer the door. So we're starting a relationship <laughs> in a place where neither one of us really wants to be there. And now we're, we're going to go from there. Uh, so I just said, forget it. Unless you run into somebody and you have a natural connection um, and you can, you can have a conversation, um, let it be. So we did that. We put these flyers out and uh, out of 700 flyers, we got three responses. And uh, um, which isn't a whole lot. You know, and one of them was a member. <laughs> so the re- the flyers basically said, "We'll come and we'll fix anything on your house, mm-hmm. from foundation to roof, plumbing, electric, anything you've got wrong. We'll bring all the materials, and we'll bring the labor for free." And uh, um, at first, they were worried about, you know, we've only got forty thousand dollars left in this ministry if if we if we do this, we can, that we could go through that in one week with a house project. And I said, yeah, that's true. But um, we're not going to get anybody to ask for help. Number one, that's going to be a problem. Uh, and and I, I basically said, you know, if, if a church group that I didn't know about showed up on my doorstep and said, we want to put a roof on your house for free, I would chase them off my property. <laughs> get out of here. I don't know you. And I don't know what you're all, what, what are you doing? And I mean, do you, are you roofers? Uh, you know, all of that. Um, so we had three, we had three takers and one was a whole house that needed to be painted. That was the member and, or the soon to be member. That's the only member we've ever gotten from this program. And uh, um, so we uh, uh, had two others. One was um uh, a garage that was kind of uh, falling into the ground, uh, kind of rotting. And another one was a roof project. And so we had three of them. And uh, the weekend that came, you know, we we showed up and uh, we had about 20 members that came uh, and uh, a handful of people from the neighborhood that I already knew. And we made these little sandwich boards that we called it Christmas in August. And uh, um and partly because it's a, it's kind of a neat name. Um, nobody knows what it is. And it, it gives people the natural first question, like, what is that? And uh, we put the boards up in the front and uh, neighbors would come out and say, what are you guys doing? What's happening here? Because none of us really look like construction workers and we're kind of a ragtag team. And we tell them what we're doing and they either helped or they would, they'd give us a lot of accolades. And by the time that uh, first, um, that first summer project was done, uh, we had more money than when we started because the neighbors were donating, just saying, we're so glad you're doing this for Millie or, you know, um, thank you so much. You know, how can we help? And, and uh, at first I was a little frustrated because I thought, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to, we're trying to wear down this account so we can close, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> And we didn't. And, uh, um, and we made it through that first year. And, uh, and, and people started paying attention. And we wrote a couple grants, and we were awarded some money. And uh, um, we started picking up members that heard about the program. And then the next year, we had five houses that responded. Mm-hmm. And the next year, there was seven, it grew every year. And, um, and then as we went along, you know, uh, like I say, we got one member from, from all the people we've helped over the years, you know, probably, 
don't know, 200, 200 houses we've been in. Um, we've only gotten one member, but we've gotten a ton of members that wanted to come and join in on helping their neighbors. Hmm. Um, so that's been, that's been very sweet. We've learned a lot that way. And, uh, um, now we've become a program, uh, where we do, we do get together for one weekend a year and we usually work on between 15 and 25 houses okay. uh, in all kinds of ways. And, uh, but we'll be in a lot of cases in this neighborhood, we'll be the first call for help for everything from backed up sewers to leaky roofs to, you know, I, I need help getting my car, you know, started or, um, so just general things of life. And then of course, those people will call during the year as well when they have a loved one die or, mm. you know, just the basic caring for each other kinds of things and loving your neighbor. And, uh, so we've got a very rich presence in the neighborhood and we still, we worship, you know, before the COVID uh, thing happened, you know, we would have physically in the building, 50 people mm-hmm. for worship, um, you know, we went, uh, we went in the first couple of years of doing this from the fastest growing ELCA church in the country hmm. because we were growing exponentially. <laughs> That's amazing. It's really easy to do when you've got two people, you know, four people is doubling your ministry. That's pretty good. And uh, I remember uh, at a pastor's meeting, I had a friend that came up and said, oh my gosh, did you see that your church was named as this exponential growth, where do you see it ending? You know, are you going to keep growing like that? And I said, no, we're, we're not going to keep growing like that. You know, we're going we're gonna, to, we're going to hit the place where we've got some kind of a, a sustainable thing, or, or we're going to hit some kind of an equilibrium. And I think we're, we're close to that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm guessing that's where we'll be and we'll help, we'll help each other. And, uh, but you know, it's not a dream to keep growing exponentially, you know, mm-hmm. One question, I was reading the article about you in from Living Lutheran, oh, yeah. and um, it, I think this was early on when, when you were interviewing with them, because they would say that the congregation was dying. Mm-hmm. You said it was dead, and could you kind of under, kind of under, explain what did, what did that mean? And, and of course, the congregation isn't closed, right. but you were already saying it was basically dead. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're hitting on a really big point. Um, You know, they wanted to see themselves when, when, uh, when I came in 2004 as a congregation that was trying to redevelop itself or it was trying to hang on. And, uh, um, and no matter what they tried, it really wasn't, it wasn't getting any traction. And so we're, we're, we're a dying congregation. And uh, I was, uh, um, the first Sunday that I was there, uh, or I was here, um, for installation was the first Sunday installation service. And we had about, I don't know, 150 or 200 people packed in this little sanctuary. And I thought, man, they were, they were, they were selling me a bill of goods. They're doing great. Until I started to realize, looking out there, that, you know, a lot of them were my wife's family, extended family. Uh, people from Como Park that came over to wish me well and send me on a new ministry and uh, um, and just a handful of people that I'd known. 
And, uh, and I thought, if you subtract all those, it probably will be a lot less. Well, the next Sunday came, uh, the Sunday after, um, and it was uh, um, the raising of Lazarus. And I remember looking out at the congregation, and, and uh, we had these pews set up just like a regular, you know, sanctuary facing forward, you know, 14-foot pews on each side with a bowling alley down the middle. And, uh, um, and not even enough uh, room on the side aisles to get a wheelchair up there. And, uh, um, and about 11 people in the sanctuary for worship. And of the 11 people, five were seminary students that were con ed program. <laughs> and to realize that, you know, the, the con ed students were doing all the lessons. They were serving communion. They were, you know, uh, doing all these what came to be known as the professional religious parts. And uh, as I was looking out at, at these people, you know, they were uh, sitting all over the place and, and they, you know, they would smile, but there was hardly any, I just said, you know, you guys really, uh, you pulled the wool over my eyes here. I, I said, you guys told me that you were, you were a dying church. You're not dying. You're dead. They're, this is dead. And, and they were a little shocked. And I just said, you know, it, it's, uh, you're done. And I said, the good news is, you know, you're dead. The good news is you're dead. The good news is you can resurrect something dead. You can't resurrect something almost dead. It's kind of like this. It's like the, uh, you know, the, um, the movie, uh, uh, I forget what it was called. Um, uh, it doesn't matter, but, uh, you know, when you're always on the line and, and you you're still operating under your own steam, it's so easy to just be clutching at whatever you can grab in order to stay from going under and uh, keep bailing out the boat. And it's like, uh, we don't belong in a boat. The boat doesn't float. Just get in the water. You know, we're dead. And uh, um, to recognize that we've got nothing to lose. We're dead already. You know, $40,000 in a bank account, it doesn't matter because we're dead. A dead person has no use for that. So let's let's take that good news and just take those resources and, and pay them forward. And we'll celebrate the ministry with a potluck. We'll say goodbye and we'll go out on a good note, you know, giving the money away rather than, you know, trying to do everything we could to keep floating and uh, so, yeah, that was a that was a key moment for us to recognize there's no guarantee for tomorrow. And we have to just uh, move into that to that recognition that you know, we're already gone. We're already we're already pushing up daisies you know? <laughs> and uh, it's OK. So good memory. So but how did do you think that 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 moment? I don't want to say turn things around, but made a difference in that the church is still here, you know, almost 20 years later. Um, that was the, the death in some ways, a sense of, of letting things go mm-hmm. and then kind of allowing what God was going to bring from this death. Right. Right. Um, yeah, we, uh, um, well, let's, uh, I'm an artist. Um, potter and a painter and uh um and so i'm a visual i'm a very visual uh 
uh, person. And uh, um, I know one thing I firmly believe, and it, it's uh, you, you you need to you need to have a holy imagination in order to keep existing in a hopeless situation. You have to imagine yourselves as blessed. It's like, you know, blessed are those that mourn. And not blessed are those who are done mourning and are already having a good day. It's blessed are those that mourn. And it's in the act of mourning that we are able to recognize that, you know, we're, uh, we're not waiting for tomorrow before the blessing comes. We are blessed. And blessed are those whose churches are are hopeless for, you know, they will, they will go on and do good things. They will go on and do powerful things. Um, so imagination is important. And uh, visually, I, I know that it's, uh, um, you know, worship is a very visual, tactile thing. Uh, you know, we, I always call it a holy waste of time. I don't know if Gordon Lathrop said that or not, but um Worship is a holy waste of time. An hour, hour and a half, every week of our lives, we get nothing done. We are useless as far as any production of anything. And uh, in, in uh, so many ways, it's such a healing thing. Um, but it, it uh, you know, we spend all this energy in choirs, making banners, you know, making sure communion plates are clean, or that paraments are all set up, or new banners for the altar, uh, candlesticks are just, I mean, all of the unessential things that don't matter are beautiful and are in the right place. And uh, so one thing I do know is we, we, we get to do things that are so rote that you might have the most beautiful weaving for a banner in the world. And if you've had it up there for 25 years, you could walk past it and never see it. So it, it needs to be changing. You know, you need to be creating and you need to be actively doing that uh, um, as a people. I, I, I believe that. It's, uh, instead, I think we've relegated the arts in uh, communities of faith to Mrs. Johnson. And no offense to Mrs. Johnson, bless her heart. Um, but, uh, you know, Mrs. Johnson is known as the banner maker, you know, and... Um, and whether that's good or not, sometimes Mrs. Johnson really got stuck on gluing shells to gunny sacks, you know, potato sacks, and uh, um, and doing block letters out of felt. That there's nothing wrong with that, but let's just let's give that let's give that proper uh, time to be shown and move on. Mm-hmm. The same is true with the most elaborate weavings. You know, you can buy. You can buy uh, altar pyramids from companies for thousands of dollars a piece. Well, who's going to move those on when you have this capital campaign to pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for things that somebody else manufactured and and you put up? So it becomes more of a um, uh, feeding the idea of the holy professional religion. You know, if you order it through such and such company, then it must be a wholly professional thing rather than, you know, let the kids make it, you know, and you might be surprised. So I think uh, visually we started to work with the sanctuary and uh, do art shows and we cut up the pews. We started cutting the pews up because we only had a handful of people. Why not sit in a circle 
Mm-hmm. You know, do we believe God is um, in our midst or do we believe God is projected up on one end of the building? You know, should we look at each other when we speak and sing? Should we, how should we develop, you know, who we are? And, uh, and, and, and make our, our setting reflect what we believe. And, uh, so that, that, so I had to become a cheerleader for some awful projects. Awful, awful, awful. Like we pulled the carpet out after we cut the pews up and, uh, um, and, and, uh, the floor was so ugly. It was, uh, all, you know, asbestos tile from the fifties, you know, brown and light brown and dark brown and just horrible. And uh, we couldn't afford to cover them, but we did, we just, we, uh, we primer painted over the top of those things. And then we invited people to bring house paint and we were going to um, teach each other how to marbleize the floor. So it would look like marble and uh, God, it was horrible, horrible. And, uh, but then we put glazes over the top. We've got an, another artist here who knows how to do glazing techniques over the top and tied it all together beautifully. And then we installed a labyrinth um, on the floor. So um, we've got this nice circle. So we focus ourselves in, you know, around that labyrinth. So it becomes a different focal point, but it talks about the journey, you know, and we're all on a journey. We don't know where we're going or how we're going to get there, but we, we do it together. And um, so we started reflecting visually Mm -hmm. what we were, um, what we were trying to live out. And uh, so all of a sudden, um, I, I put the seminary students that were, were wonderful. I've had so many wonderful seminary students back when that program was really working. I, I'll put them on notice. You know, if you really need to practice reading the lessons, you can let me know. But if, if you're pretty good at reading the lessons, forget it. We don't need you. We're going to give the lesson reading to the people. And, um, and if people are not good at reading and they want, that's okay. We'll go slow. We'll listen. We'll we'll let them correct themselves. We'll let. Uh, so we we started doing very unprofessional worship services. You know, people collecting offerings that you know um, couldn't remember if they'd gone up that aisle or not, or gone over to that side of the circle. And kids were involved in um, you know uh, communion serving and uh, uh, very very. Uh, um, you know, on, on the ground, you know, very uh, rooted in, in this community. And uh, so if, if seminary students needed to preach, that's great. In fact, that was, that was super as far as I was concerned. I need a break every once in a while. But we don't need them. We don't need them to do all of the professional church stuff. That's the work of the people. And let's empower the people. And lo and behold, what do you find out? But the people that weren't the best at those jobs are our stars. You know, they are the stars. And that, I mean, that's the gospel right there. And uh, um, so the seminary students really enjoyed that. Um, some did, some, some, some didn't that, you know, they really wanted a lot of experience doing all the stuff. And uh, um, so, uh, but that, that era changed and ended. And uh, um, we still had students around. That was beautiful. Um, but I, I feel like we gave, we gave the ministry back to the people that were here. And, uh, and as people came, you know, we really believe that they should, they should change us. Every person that comes through that door should change us. 
in some way, shape, or form because we are a reflection together. And if they're just fitting into what, you know, we're doing, and if you like us, you like us. If you don't, go somewhere else, you know. Um, so we've shifted over the years and we've changed and uh, we continue to do that. Um, but yeah, uh, they were dead and, uh, and, and resurrection keeps coming to us over and over again. And, and uh, that's, that's been, it's been rich. Yeah. I guess that, that's kind of, and you've probably already answered this question is kind of where have you seen resurrection happening? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like that's been happening and having, the people kind of taking over some of the parts of the service that for so long they didn't have a role in. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, as in a lot of churches, you know, it, it, uh, you know, we, um, I said early on, it's like, uh, you know, people say, you know, the sign of a growing church is that there are children around, you know, there are little kids around, where are the kids? And uh, um, at, at first we only had a handful of kids, you know, we had two of them that we brought, you know, and it's like, you know, I said, well, th- there are children in each one of us. We each have an inner child. So I want all of us, including 97-year-old, you know, um, Alice Matthews, all of us are on our knees painting the sanctuary floor. We're giving it our best shot and, uh, and having fun with it and laughing at our mistakes. And uh, we're going to be kids. And uh, um and, you know, the, the grieving that takes place, you know, we don't have enough kids to do a Christmas program, you know, that kind of a thing. And it's like, well, we're still going to have a Christmas program. Let's, we're going to come and, and everybody just grab an outfit when you come in the door. And it's a no rehearsal Christmas program. And we'll call people up as the parts are, 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 are told. And we'll have a narrator and uh, just, just uh, to give you a little taste of this. Um, you know, we had a little girl that came, she's about 10 years old now. And when she was two, her second birthday, she went in for a well check and they found she had, she had kidney cancer and she needed to get a kidney removed and then have chemo and radiation. And as a two-year-old. And so we walked with that family for, you know, a couple of years of treatment and trying to get through cancer. Well, when she was about four, two years later, the Christmas program came around and here she is. She's she's bald, except for the furry little hair on the top of her chemo ridden head. And she's got steroids in her and she's got uh, um, uh, necropathy in her in her feet. So she doesn't her feet don't work perfectly. And anyway, she wants to be an angel for the Christmas pageant that year. And uh, and she comes in. And I tell you what, so disruptive. I mean, yelling and laughing, and she can't sit still in this angel outfit. So there are a bunch of angel outfits running around. And this kid is running from one end of the church sanctuary to the other and squealing. And there's not a dry eye in the place because who's to say that angels are supposed to be well-behaved? or sit still, or, you know, be angelic, whatever angelic is, we just were so gleefully thankful that she was alive. Mm -hmm. And we were so happy that in her steroid induced, you know, hyperactivity, she was flying as an angel from end to end. And, and, uh, 
she really um, set us straight, you know, because you still have people that, you know, we want the kids to behave, you know, and it's like, she really changed us. She changed us in her illness. And, uh, and she's changed us through this pandemic too, as a 10 year old, Mm. she's very compromised. If she gets it, she's in big trouble. So there's, there's very few, you know, uh, um, I don't use anybody here that would not wear a mask or do what they could to protect that, that kid. And it's because uh, they know the angel that she is. And she's, she's, she's got a little demon underneath that costume. Well, we love that little demon. And uh, um, so, yeah, our pageants are going to be a little chaotic. I mean, okay, they're going to be very chaotic. But that's the way our life is, too. And somewhere holiness comes through in that. And uh, it's changed us. Um, yeah, so that's resurrection right there. You know, to do a Christmas pageant every... Nobody comes to me anymore and says, I'm so nervous and worried. Nobody's helping me put the Christmas pageant together. The kids aren't coming for practices. And I'm I'm sick of it. I'm not doing it anymore. It's like nobody worries about it. Nobody, nobody. And it's beautiful. So it's a gift. It's a real gift. And where did, um, you kind of said that the the member, the, the new members that were coming were hearing about this. Um, were they hearing about it just through other people or how did, you know, how did the, the word get spread that what, what peace was doing? Yeah, pretty much word of mouth. Okay. It was neighbors talking to neighbors and neighbors talking to a family member that came to visit. And um, so we'll, you know, we're still a largely a a neighborhood church and um, uh, you know um, yeah, it it just spreads that way. And um, sometimes people will come like we had a city pages article that was done a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And remember that uh, was very sweet. And uh, um, we had so many visitors showing up thinking that we were the promised land or something. And then what they came to find out was, was here's this kid, you know, running around and, and here is, um, you know, here's a choir that sometimes doesn't sing on key, you know, and uh, this person here keeps dropping their coffee cup and it's uh, um, okay. How can we help? You know? And it's like, well, grab a cup of coffee and meet a few people and, and live your life, you know, help, helping will come. Don't worry about that part, but no, where do we sign up and who organizes this? And it's like, well, you know, if you want to come on Tuesday, I'm going to be working on someone's toilet. You know, I work on Tuesday, you know, so it becomes this, how can I plug in to a regimented thing and, 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 uh, and give my gift at the prescribed time or, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I totally uh, uh, respect that, but um, the magic that if there is any magic, it, it, it comes from people sharing their lives together. And uh, um, so we had, we had a number of people come through and then go back out. <laughs> Cause you know, it's better to be able to give than to just live your life with people. And uh um, but we, we've gotten a lot of, uh, um, support, um, from the neighbors and from, in the greater uh, cities area and, and across the country, you know, through that particular article. And, um, so it's really been affirming and, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been very, very wonderful. We, you know, we had 
we had a member in the neighborhood that um, uh, it, I, I almost gave the name, but it's an anonymous member that died and they left uh, um, $220,000 to this little church back in 2010. And um, I remember telling the synod that we were, we were going to give, we were going to tithe it, but we were going to find all these places that we're going to tithe to. And we were going to engage ourselves in how to spend that money for the good of the world. And um, we firmly believe in what the synod's doing. I think it's an amazing synod. And, um, but our people never really understood about connecting money as a tool to what we do. So we, we were going to do that. I remember um, one of the bishop's assistants said, I heard about your gift. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> and I said, so sorry to hear that. He, and he said, yeah, and I understand what he's saying here. He said, little churches like you guys, if you're given a big gift like that, usually that it ends up creating so many fights and animosity and, and, and disagreements about how to spend that money that it ends up tearing people apart. And, uh, um, and we certainly could have gone that way, but we, we decided to, you know, spread it out into three buckets, basically, mm -hmm. you know, um, infrastructure of our building, you know, would, would, would be X number of dollars. Um, give it, give it to the, to the neighborhood, invest in the neighborhood somehow would be another third. And then another third would be programs and, uh, and opportunities for people with education and whatnot. Um, uh, and, and, and helping. And, um, so one of the things we did was, oh, and the other thing is everything we do with that money, um, that gift will only give 50% of what's needed for that project. So the first thing people wanted to do is let's get an elevator, you know, cause we couldn't afford an elevator 20 years prior. Uh, um, it was 200 and some thousand dollars. And, and, uh, so we ended up digging the elevator ourselves got shovels. We dug the elevator out ourselves. We built it ourselves. We had a company come and put the guts in and the whole project ended up being like $25,000 total for the whole thing, start to finish. And it took us about a year and a half to do it together. And then we put solar panels on the roof and all of our utilities are paid for now. And then we, we, you know, we make five, $6,000 a year off the solar panels and uh, and that keeps being regenerated into the fund. Um, so uh, they even got creative with that money. You know, how do we use this as a tool? How do we give it away? We bought a grand piano, not brand new, but enough so that the neighbors could come and use it for recitals and, and whatnot. And um, yeah, so resurrection happens in ways. But um, uh, one of the things that I, I, I remember hearing from um, one of the committee members uh, back when we got that money was they kept asking me, um, is there anything we could do with this money that would cause you to say, I'm done. I think I need to move on to another church. And I kept saying, you know, as long as we all agree together in community, what to do with this. And we all have a voice. That's a consensus. I, I can live with that. And they kept asking me and kept asking me. And then finally I said, you know, um, if we use this money as a credit card, if we just take this money and use it to avoid needing our neighbors to help, then I think I'm done. 
You know, if, if we use it as a credit card to pay a company to come and put an elevator in and we can stand back and complain about how long they're taking or what the overages are in payments, um, we need to have some skin in the game and we need to do this together. And, and uh, there's nothing wrong with doing it, you know, the way uh, a good portion of society does and just use the money. We didn't make the piano. We didn't come together and say, we'll put $10,000 for it and then we'll make the rest of the piano. There's some things we can't do, but there are some things we can, you know, we can, you know, we can make the dolly for it. Mm-hmm. We've got a steel worker. You make the dolly for us. And by engaging people with the gifts they have. Um, and uh, one of the other things was, you know, we're always on the ropes with money. We, we are this year too. Um, we always said that you can only use up to 10% of that gift towards the operating budget. And it's been, how long has it been? 11 years since we got the gift. And we've never used a nickel of it for the operating budget, not one nickel. And uh, but we've used that money to do a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been very, it's been, and, you know, we're, you know, we're totally, uh, you know, um, we, we, we create almost tripled the energy of this building that we use. So we, uh, um, in a sense, it's kind of strange, 1954 building, all concrete blocks with no insulation. And we would qualify as a lead building. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Because we're generating more, more energy than we're consuming. It's beautiful. And if we can do it, if we can do it, you know, there's so many things that can be done. So, so what would you say? Because there are lots of congregations like peace that are out there yeah. that are probably of that size. They, you know, don't have a huge amount of money in the budget. Um, yeah. How, what advice would you give them for where they are and what they can do? And I'm not saying necessarily to turn themselves around, but to basically to live or to, mm-hmm. to be resur- to allow themselves to be resurrected. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, boy, I, I, I think I'd begin with um I'd begin with just finding out where do where do they have joy? You know, where 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 does their joy stem from? Um quit quit focusing on the scene of the accident. Quit 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 looking at the cars that they've driven, quit looking at who they've been in the past. Stop all that. And start asking serious questions about where where do they find their joy? Where do they see resurrection happening already? And uh, and you know where are they curious? You know what's their curiosity? And and I'm talking about just in their regular lives, not not in not in uh, their church life, but where do they find? Uh, their passion and um and go from there mm-hmm. like the church i had in the hill in the in the uh, black hills of south dakota you know i did a few things with people around working on homes for neighbors that were in need out there it didn't really work it it just it didn't fit that that place 
And, but we did, we helped a few people, you know, they have a whole different, they have a whole different um, ethos going on in the Hills. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they did it in other ways um, through the arts and uh, um, you know, community garden and, um, but you know, they don't do it. Don't, don't find something to do that can raise you money. Don't, <laughs> it's like uh, when we really look back on the ministry that we've done, you know, we've gotten very little money from Christmas and August, you know, it's cost us, uh, but we've just, you know, we've just come to enjoy it so much and to love our neighbors through it. And it made a huge difference um, because it taps into our passion. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're always being scrappy about where, how can we make the budget? We're always doing that. You know, um, you know, maybe we could write this grant or that grant, or maybe we could, you know, put together, you know, and every year is different. Like one year we, we, um, one year we, uh, uh, I had a number of elderly people that were getting dementia Mm -hmm. and they were sitting home alone or with a partner that just never got a break. And I said to myself, you know, maybe we should write a grant and and create some kind of like a day program for some of our people, you know, or or maybe deliver them to the community center. Um, And then somebody asked if we would be interested in putting an addition on their house as a kitchen right down the street. And next thing you know, I, I, I said, well, until I write that grant, maybe we'll do that with them. So we went down the street and every day at lunch, every day, you know, the person that, that wanted this kitchen on their house was a volunteer of ours. She'd feed everybody that came. So she had people that, you know, were forgetful and could, couldn't swing a hammer, you know. So it was kind of like, um, I called it the Misfit Construction Company. And for over a year, everybody met there every day. And a lot of days I couldn't be there, but they'd still be there. They'd be sweeping up or sanding a little board that didn't need sanding or needed sanding. And, uh, um, and then that family took care of all those people and uh, got us through. So we, we were, you know, given donations from that family for an addition. And that made, a, that made our budget that year. It was amazing. And but we created a day program for people in need by doing it. And it was creative. And it's like, is that sustaining? No, we're, we don't, we're not doing that anymore. We don't have the ability to do it now, but who knows what's coming tomorrow, you know? Mm. Yeah. So how, how did the church fare during COVID since, you know, a lot of people this time, well, last year, um, most of the year, people weren't in churches and had to do things via YouTube or Facebook and all that. How did the church fare um, during that time period? Uh, yeah, you know, we, we applied for the PPP loan, mm-hmm. you know, and that really helped. We got about $20,000 uh, through the government. That, that was, uh, that's like a fifth of our budget. And that really helped us. Um, but uh, we were also, um, you know, that first year, you know, the Synod, uh, St. Paul area Synod, you know, uh, called and gave us 2000 bucks towards our bills. And, 
said, you know, I think we're doing really well. You know, we've got this PPP thing, you know, give it to somebody that needs it. And they were very sweet. And and uh, I remember Patricia Lowell said, no, we want you to have it. It's from the it's from the ELCA, uh, you know, national and uh, for churches like yours, do something with it. That'll help some people. So we ended up getting um, ended up getting hundred dollar gift cards to Aldi's to give out to people that needed it. And so we had 20 of them at first, $2,000 worth. And we gave them to our people and said, if you know somebody that's in need of groceries or help, give them this card. And the trick is this, give it to them and tell them that if they could use it, they should use it. If they can't use it, then give it to somebody that they think could use it, pass it on. And then nobody, nobody felt like they were uh, receiving something they shouldn't, or they weren't ashamed of it. They became a link in the chain for help down the line. And uh, um, so it worked so well. And the thing was, people could come to the church and get four or five of these cards if they knew people. Mm -hmm. And so we were giving our own members these cards. And uh, it was so amazing that uh, people were able to come here and do that. And uh, so we we got another $2,000 of our money and then another $2,000 of our money. So we've, I forget, we've given six or $7,000 worth of those cards out since, since COVID began on top of our, you know, um, pledging to the Synod and, and whatnot. And uh, it's been beautiful because it's not, it's not a program we all vote on. And then that's it. You just hear, uh, a, you know, some kind of a, a report on where the money went. It's literally physical people handing help to somebody else and reaching out to neighbors. And it, it happened through all of our members. And um, so we still, we've got about four of them left, but uh, we're probably going to have to get more pretty soon. But it, that was wonderful. Um, the other thing is we, we do share our sanctuary. We, we rent out um, uh, the afternoon on Sundays to a Mennonite congregation called Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. And um, they have not met in the building since COVID started, but they still send us $1,300 a month. Mm-hmm. And we told them right away. And they're, 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 they're probably about the same size we are, but um, they, they, they've been committed. We said, stop paying rent until you come back. You know, we know how hard it is. And they said, well, we know how hard it is to keep a building, you know? And so they keep paying us every month, even though they're not in the building. And that's, that's just been such a sweet um, relationship and we look forward to them coming back. But um, our budget hurts more this year than it did last year, but um, we still meet on zoom live Mm -hmm. and uh, we're doing a hybrid together live and in person right now, like most people, but we stay masked and, uh, um, and people need each other. So it, 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 we haven't uh, we've learned new things about ourselves and done some good things on zoom that we wouldn't have done otherwise. So it's been good. What are those things that you've learned on zoom? Oh, um, so different. boy. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I, I, I've, I've said this to, and, and our people would say the same thing. They've really enjoyed zoom worship, um, trying to figure out what that is. And, and part of it is when you're in person, 
like we are now. We're half in person, half on Zoom, and we project it, and people interact with each other. But when you're in person, there's all this body language going on. There's a breeze that comes in and makes everybody kind of, you know, shudder a little bit. And then they look at each other in the eyes across the room. And for a moment, their concentration is gone. And they are wondering who opened the door. They're wondering, you know, and then somebody drops something on, and then they look over and somebody's laughing. So there's all of this interaction that's going on that's unspoken in the room when it's live. And there's, there's, um, there's, uh, there's not a level of concentration. Like right now, I, I see you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we always, <laughs> we always joke about on Zoom, were they wearing pants or not? You know, who cares? It doesn't matter. But it's like in you worry about all that stuff in person. But on Zoom, I'm looking at your bright, smiling face. And, and uh, you got a painting on your wall. And that is it. So I'm interacting with you. And uh, as a congregation of 50 people, everybody is muted except for a speaker. Mm. Everybody's focusing on that. They might drop their coffee cup, but nobody hears it. Uh, The dog might come in. Nobody hears it. And if somebody wants to speak on Zoom worship, they have to physically unmute and people listen to them. And people that never spoke before speak on Zoom because they've got equal uh, access, equal opportunity, and they know people will be listening. And uh, so it's really been an equalizer that way um, for those that will do Zoom. But some people want nothing to do with it. And uh, we've, we don't have very many people like that. But uh, we've tried to help them get computers if they need it. But, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, after church is done, uh, people clear out and they're gone. And oftentimes Zoom breakout rooms will go for another hour, mm. hour and a half. It's like because they are, they have this undivided attention. And that's not something we have anymore. In churches or otherwise, you don't have it. So, hmm. where do you see the future for the congregation? <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know. We have to catch up to it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I've been here for twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Twenty years. It'll be twenty years. Eighteen years. Eighteen years. Um feels like just started but uh and it it feels like you know 20 years but it's it's changing all the time and uh i was worried for a long time about um because i really i believe this congregation is doing amazing things for this neighborhood it's really a needed thing you know i'm sharing the body of christ as the body of christ in this place at this time is uh it's been so powerful um, and I, so I've started thinking about, um, you know, wanting to be a good steward of this, of this gift to the neighborhood. How can we set it up to be self-sustaining into the years to come long after Dave Greenland? And, uh, um, and I've had plenty of people that have uh, said, don't worry about that. Don't worry. You know, just keep, keep trying to catch up to the future now. Um, forget about the safety of, you know, guaranteeing this or that, you know, it's kind of like, can we endow a position, you know, (laughs) 
And it's like, um, no, I, I think churches, churches really um, need to be hungry. We need to be hungry and always alert about how to be bodies of Christ risen in this time and place. The future is somewhere on the road to Emmaus, you know, it's up there somewhere. And uh, right now I, I know that we, we are doing our best to figure out how to keep uh, this little girl safe from mm -hmm. a, a virus and how to continue to connect with people that are um, really, um, really uh, scared and alone. And, uh, um, restless. That's our future right now. Um, and, uh, how do we, how do we remain hopeful in a, in a world that just seems to be, um, hell bent on self-sufficiency and, uh, and, and doing their own safety measures of insurance and, um, how to save this democracy you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not a bad thing to worry about, but it's not, it's not uh, something that this church will survive and be the body of Christ, whether this democracy survives or not. And I have to keep telling myself that because I worry about it all the time. How do we, how do we, um, how do we, we, we repair, you know, the, the caste system we have in this country of, of racism. Uh, this church will continue to be the body of Christ wherever we end up on that. And how do we present ourselves? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to be hopeless about, but um, there's so much that uh, we need to die to in order to be the future. And uh, part of some of the worrying is, is, is needs to die. And, uh, and I say that, I don't say that lightly because I'm, 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 I'm worried about a lot of things right now. And, uh, and I just have to be reminded, you know, is that little, is that little, you know, demon angel goes running through the sanctuary, you know, in, in my mind's eye, or I see her out on the street, down the street, you know, running with her super boots you know, with her feet that don't work. And uh, I, I remember, okay, we're the body of Christ, you know, we're not this or that. So um, yeah, I, I, future, that ain't mine. <laughs> uh, I think one thing that's been an interesting theme here is you talk a lot about you kind of self-sufficiency. And it seems like one of the things that seems to have helped this congregation is to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 am I correct in that assessment or it just, just seems like that's what I've been picking up. Yeah, no, that's, uh, um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, we can't do it alone, you know, but that doesn't mean you don't start, you know, you don't, you don't, when we started the elevator project, looking back on that, it's one of the craziest things I ever did. Crazy. You know, cause I told people to bring their shovels with them to church. We started digging a hole that was going to go 15 feet into the ground. You know, I, I, I can't even remember how many tons of dirt that is, but you know, you, you put your shovel in the ground and you, and then you, you put the dirt where, <laughs> 
<laughs> it can't stay there because it's a big hole and not thinking that through, you know, and if you think through every problem that you're going to have, you'd never start. And, nope. uh, and we had bigger projects than that, than that, you know, um, you keep, you keep showing up and, uh, w- not with all the materials you need and just trusting that something will happen. But, you know, um, one example of that would be this. So we were going to put solar panels on the roof. And before we put solar panels on the roof, a hailstorm hit the roof, which was from God. The hailstorm from God hit the roof <laughs> and gave us an insurance payout to put a new roof on this church, hmm. which we needed before we could put solar panels on. So they're putting this the new roof on and they realize they need insulation up there. And uh, um, so they're putting insulation up there. And then they put the shingles on. And as a result, they've got insulation on the roof for the first time ever. And what happens is the roof is, is not going to melt the snow off anymore. So we created a problem. Now we've got this insulated roof that'll be more energy efficient. But now we're going to have this incredible load of weight on the roof that never was there. And uh, the engineer for the solar panel said that the roof was going to collapse this winter in the first couple snows. And we said, that can't be true. This has been here for all these years. We got our own engineer who confirmed that and said, if you don't, if you don't get the snow off that roof immediately, when it comes down, you're going to, the building's going to collapse. So we had people showing up every time it snowed more than an inch with roof rakes, pulling the snow off. And then we had to come up with a plan to reinforce the roof with 12,000 pounds of steel and do it ourselves. Otherwise it was going to cost a hundred thousand dollars. So we bought the steel, we had it delivered, we had to unload it. And then we had to figure it out, figure out how to put 13,000 pounds of steel on the ceiling to keep the roof from collapsing. I don't know how to do that. And I still didn't know, even after we put the stuff on the floor in the church, but people started coming up and showing up and saying, I think we could do it this way or that way. And, and uh, I mean, it's just stupid, the things that we did and very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing we could have done is um, it wouldn't have been as vulnerable to just pick the right construction company and then just have cottage meetings to try to figure out how to raise a hundred thousand dollars to save the roof. That's not vulnerable. That's, that's uh, not sure what it is, but it, it keeps us from being vulnerable. And uh, we've gotten far from that. So, yeah, that's a great point. You know, it's about vulnerability and you got, and not worrying about looking like a fool. It's you look really foolish here. <laughs> we really do. Um, well, but I think that also goes back to, Christ as well. I mean, there is a talk about kind of Christ being foolish and yeah, Paul talks about that. So it's, it's pretty biblical to act foolish. Yeah. We, we, for, you know, in some ways it's kind of like where we started this conversation. It's kind of like we didn't have any kids that would show us that we had life, but we all have an inner kid. And, and to see a 97-year-old lady with arthritic knees on the floor giggling in a sanctuary as she painted with house paint is priceless. 
and it's it's uh it's so childlike and childish and full of life her giggles are full of life and uh, we don't have enough of that but it comes out of a vulnerability um yeah yeah you're right well, thank you for, for this interview. This was, I think, a very helpful, um, engaging, and to tell the story of one church. Um, I'm hoping that it can can make a difference to other people who are listening. I, you know, it's not necessarily you do this and this will happen, but I think it's it's helpful to hear those stories um, mm-hmm. to, to give communities of faith to think about that. Yeah, I I, I pray that uh, people that hear this will just. Uh, Start learning how to continue opening their eyes the way they have been, but open your eyes and just keep looking and keep watching and listening and being foolish and, you know, follow the laughter, Mm. follow the smiles, and then follow the food. Follow the food together and laugh. It'll happen. Yeah. And that food might be a potluck saying goodbye to a ministry. That's okay too. There might be something else coming. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for the great questions. And um, I'm glad that there are people out there that are doing the same things uh, in different ways. And uh, it feels good to not be alone. Yes, it does. Yeah. All right. You be well. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Thank you.